Welcome. Let's go ahead and open up in a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the week you've just brought us through. We want to thank you for the beautiful spring weather, reminding us that there is new life in you. And Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we go into this lesson. We ask that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our ears. Let us learn from you and become more and more like your son, Yeshua, each and every day. Amen. So good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful week. Today, we will wrap up the subject of hypergrace. I know I've been teaching about this for a while now. We actually began this study a couple of months ago. We looked at what hypergrace is and why it's so dangerous. And to put it in very simplistic terms, that is a teaching, it's a perverted grace teaching that essentially says, come as you are, stay as you are, sin and all. Rather than biblical, the biblical message of saying, come as you are and be transformed by the power of God. And last week, Steve and I had to go to a funeral, and I didn't say anything to him as we passed it, and I kind of wish I'd had time to get my camera out and make a picture of it, but we passed a church that actually had a sign out there saying, all are welcome, and then it began to list a whole list of sins. But it said nothing about come and be transformed. Even some of the sins that God calls an abomination were listed there. So in other words, just come on in as you are. And that unfortunately is where we've gotten to in our culture. But we saw in that initial teaching how congregations that adopt this distorted view of grace often attempt to reinvent themselves, to be more accepting to the world, to be more relevant, even cool. They often give up their prayer services for other programs, and they encourage their people to live a life in obedience to encourage them to live a life, excuse me, I got a typo here. Uh, they give up other programs that encourage them to live a life of obedience to God, and they discard those in favor of such things as movie night, martial arts, going out to witness in bars, and so forth. And those things ultimately weaken the congregation, and those members become not just accepting of these sinful lifestyles, but they actually will often begin participating in those. Then on March 2nd, we had, excuse me, March 3rd, we had our second class. And at that time, we looked at this perverted message of grace, of what we learned that it really isn't anything new. It didn't simply appear with Yeshua and his sacrificial death, and it wasn't anything that just appeared in our modern times. The foundation that allowed this message to flourish was actually laid four centuries before Yeshua. And today we're going to continue down that path, and we're going to follow this trail, and we're going to bring it up to modern times and see how it has impacted the body of Messiah. And I want to warn you, we will be covering a lot of history today. And I want to apologize in advance because it may seem at times I'm going here, 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 and just head may be spinning. But I really want to go ahead and finish up this topic today. Uh, and, I, and in order to do it justice, I've got to hit a lot of things. So just bear with me. First, I want to do a quick recap of some of the points we talked about in the last lesson as a refresher because it's been a few weeks, and these points are critical to our understanding of the message this morning. Then we'll begin to follow up history and bring it to modern times in order to trace the roots of the modern-day hypergrace message. If you've studied the Bible, 
you know that there was a period of time that we often refer to as the 400 silent years. This is the time between the writing of the Old Testament, which ended with the book of Malachi and the Tanakh, and the opening of the Gospels, when God commanded the angel Gabriel to appear to Zechariah in the temple and to announce the birth of his son, John the Immerser, who was the forerunner of Yeshua. During those 400 years, God remained silent because of the people's sins. There was no more scripture written. There was no prophecies given, nor were there any divine visitations. But guess what? Even though God was silent, the enemy was not. He was very busy. He was busy creating an environment into which this perverted message could incubate and grow into what we now know as the hypergrace movement. The key is Greek philosophy, which may come as a surprise to some people. And to be honest with you, it had been around for a couple of centuries before we pick up with Socrates, but there's a difference. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Socrates, as you probably know, was one of the most famous of all the Greek philosophers. He came onto the scene just prior to those 400 silent years. And the difference between him and those earlier philosophers is very simple. The earlier philosophers tended to focus on the world around them. They sought to find answers to questions such as, is the world made up of earth, air, fire, and water? Or are there smaller building blocks? Does mathematics govern everything? What about poetry? Socrates, who lived between 470 and 333 BC, changed all that by teaching the people to look within at their moral beings, at what makes us humans tick. He focused on logic and reasoning. On the positive side, he played a big role in helping the people to reject those sorry, pathetic, and argumentative Greek gods. But he did so at a price. He was condemned to death by his own government for, quote-unquote, corrupting the youth and neglecting the gods. After Socrates, we looked at his most famous student, Plato. Plato lived from 427 to 347 BC, and his teachings actually dipped into those 400 silent years. Plato founded the very first academy, and there he taught mathematics, geometry, law, and the natural science, as well as philosophy. He's well known for his works and his writings, and a lot of those early works focused on the ideas of his teacher, Socrates. Plato is probably best known for what is called the theory of forms. And we talked about that at length last time. Basically, it's a teaching that in several respects is very similar to our faith. And according to his theory, there are actually two worlds. There's this world that we live in, which is an imperfect world, and there's the perfect world. Everything in this imperfect world is a replica of what is in that perfect world. For example, we talked about last time the chairs that we see here. These are imperfect chairs, but there are perfect chairs in that other world. 
Out of, of importance this morning for this class is the fact that Plato's teachings and his view actually left room for God. But it was, not, it was an impersonal, uninvolved God and not, and I do stress not, the God of the Bible. Even though there are some, some similarities, there are some very serious differences between Plato's view and what we believe and what the Bible teaches us. And his theory was similar enough to scripture that it would ultimately seep into the faith and serve as an incubator for the modern day hypergrace message, which is what we'll talk about today. Plato also had a very famous student, Aristotle. I'm sure some of you have heard of him. Yet another famous Greek philosopher. Aristotle lived completely within those 400 silent years when God was silent. And Aristotle was very influential on society as well. His most famous student, all these teachers have these really famous students. Have you noticed that? His was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was responsible for initiating Hellenization, which is a fancy word meaning the assimilation of other groups into the Greek culture. And sadly, many of the noble Jewish families who lived in Greece chose to adopt the Greek lifestyle and forsake Judaism. Now I want to take a quick detour and talk about a couple of other people we did not talk about last week or last time I taught, but they're still important to this discussion. The first is Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, who lived from 215 to 164 BC, again during those 400 silent years. He ruled the Seleucid Empire from 157 BC until his death in 164 BC. By this time, many of the Jewish people had actually become Hellenistic and assimilated into Greek culture. And this is important because it tells us that right from the beginning, the Greek influence was there in religious life for the, for the uh, first century believers, as we'll see later. It went in from the Gentiles who were part of that culture as well as the Jewish people who had adopted the culture. And if the name Antiochus Epiphanes sounds vaguely familiar, it should. This is the very same Epiphanes who ordered the worship of the Greek god Zeus and issued decrees prohibiting the practice of Judaism. That's what incited the Maccabean uprising. And that was when the religious Jews under the leadership of Judah Maccabee restored religious freedom and liberated the temple, rededicating it, and giving us what is known as the festival of Hanukkah. Then there's a second person that we need to briefly introduce. We get closer to the end of these 400 silent years and a Roman philosopher comes onto the scene, Cicero. He lived from 106 to 43 BC and is widely considered to be one of Rome's greatest orators. He was responsible for introducing the Romans to Greek philosophy, and he translated many of their concepts into Latin, which was the Roman language. And again, what all of this tells us is that by, the time, by this time in history, the Greek culture was strongly influencing both the Romans and many of the Jews. Now back to our recap from the last lesson. A good example of how the assimilation of Greek culture into the faith wasn't limited only to the Gentiles is Philo, a Jew who lived from 20 BCE to 50 CE. 
and thus was alive during Yeshua's lifetime and the early spread of the gospel. As I mentioned last time, he was Jewish, but his education was thoroughly Greek, something that was normal for Jews who lived in Alexandria at that time. Although he was a faithful and proud Jew, his life ambition was to marry his religious heritage with his philosophic tendencies because he believed there was continuity between Moses and Plato. His motives were good because many of the Jews of his day were departing from Judaism. They wanted to leave the law of Moses. They wanted to be part of the Greek culture. And it was for that reason that he worked very hard to show them that it was possible to be part of Greek culture and still be a faithful Jew. That was his view. Philo therefore developed Bible commentaries. And they were mainly from the book of Genesis. And if you know anything about what happens with false teachings, they usually really want to destroy the book of Genesis because if you can destroy the creation, if you can destroy the beginning, then everything else in the Bible is up for grabs. You can take and distort it any way you want to. So this is important. He focused on the book of Genesis. He was actually the first one to do so, using both the Bible and the works of Plato to create commentaries on the book of Genesis, if you can imagine that. The problem is that Plato's starting point was inferior. It was that the world, which was imperfect, and therefore, in his view, bad, was created by, and get this, a lesser god, something he called the Demiurge. He didn't believe the perfect god could be involved in this earth, which is imperfect. Like I said, he had two worlds. There's the world we live in, the imperfect world, and then there's the perfect world. The creator god lived in that perfect world. This lesser god, the Demiurge, lived here in this imperfect world. Because he didn't believe that God could interact with the imperfect. And that viewpoint presented a real challenge when he was attempting to explain a lot of what Moses had taught. So he had to fudge, and he had to use what we refer to as allegory in order to make his theories work. This is how allegory came into our faith. As we know, we, Christianity developed from Judaism. So, from Philo, we learned that the influence of the Greeks came into the body of Messiah right from the beginning. Again, as I said earlier, both the Jewish people in the diaspora who lived in Alexandria and the surrounding areas, as well as the Gentiles who brought that culture into their faith. So now what I want to do is pick up and see how this impacted the body of Messiah from the days of the early church fathers until the present time. And I've got several sources here that I've pulled some information from, if I can get this to... Come on. Well, it won't flip. Anyway, I can give you my sources. I have a screen with them, but it won't come up for some reason. Okay. We're going to be looking again at Dr. Michael L. Brown's book, Hyper Grace, Exposing the Dangers of the Modern Grace Movement. A book we looked at last time as well was by author Steve Maltz, who's a Jewish man, who is a believer of Yeshua. It's called How the Church Lost the Way, with the way referring to what the early believers were known as, and how it can find it again. Acts 15 for the pra Practical Messianic by J.K. McKee, one of my favorite authors. And Escaping the Great Deception by Derek Frank. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with that one or not, Paul Wilbur's ministries a few years ago, thank you, just a few years ago, 
released a DVD set as well as this book, and it, it basically deals with the Reformation forward. Then there was a website, Teaching the Word Ministries, at teachingtheworld.org. So that's where I pulled a lot of this material from. We'll talk, when we talked about Acts chapter 15 last time, it was because it recounts the council that was held in Jerusalem after the Gentiles became, started coming into this fledgling faith in massive numbers. We saw that the problem the original Yeshua followers faced, and remember they were almost exclusively Jews at this time, was what do we do with all these Gentiles who are coming in? They're coming in from paganism. There were some Gentiles that had become part of the faith, but they had been familiar with Judaism, so they weren't a problem. The problem we had was, was all of these Gentiles coming in straight from paganism with no exposure to God and his laws. Set up a very different set of issues. In an attempt to resolve the problems, James, the half-brother of Yeshua, attempted to find a solution. He set forth a set of standards that would allow these new converts to fellowship with Jewish believers, and therefore they could grow in their faith. And so we're going to pick up from there, and we're going to move into the second century and see how Plato's influence was still a prominent factor within the body of Messiah. And I want to begin with Justin Martyr, who was a second century Christian apologist. He believed that Plato's followers would be so challenged by the similarities between their worldview and Christianity that they would very well consider converting to this new faith. Again, as we saw up with another person, with Philo, his intentions were good, but his engagement for the purpose of evangelism gave way to debate, then to compromise, then finally to assimilation, further entrenching Greek philosophy into the new faith. Then, there is Marcion, and I'm sure many of you have heard of Marcion the heretic. He was a second century church father, and according to him, and see if this sounds familiar to you, the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment, wrath, and justice. The God of the New Testament was a God of love and was superior to the God of the Old Testament. And I've actually heard teachings like that in the past in churches. And sounds very much like Plato, doesn't it? Two gods. There is the nice, loving God, then there, or, and then there's the evil God, the Demiurge. Marcion explicitly denied the authority of the Torah in his teachings and his writings, and he expunged all Jewish influence in them from the New Testament. And that's interesting, because when you look at the New Testament, who, according to him, has this God of love and grace and doesn't punish, Actually, God holds justice and judgment to the same degree in the New Testament as he does the Old Testament. And I'll give you one ex quick example. If you'll go to Acts chapter 5, you're going to read a story about Ananias and Sapphira. It was a husband and wife who sold some property, and they went to Peter to give him supposedly the money from this sale. But they didn't give him all the money. They lied to him about how much they sold the property for. And as he told them, it was their property. They could do with it as they pleased. It wasn't the fact that he wasn't giving them all the money. It was the fact that they were lying and trying to make him think that they were being so righteous by giving him all the money. What did God do? This loving God, he struck him dead right on the spot. First the husband, 
Then after he was carried out, the wife came in. Same thing happened again. She lied. God struck him dead. So I'd love to see Marcion explain that one. <laughs> but guess what? The Greek influence didn't stop there. Early church father Origen, who also lived in the second century, had several things in common with Philo, including the fact that he lived in Alexandria and he had a passion for interpreting the Bible. The big difference is that Origen was a Gentile who viewed scripture as raw data to be processed using the tools of Greek understanding. His primary focus on interpreting the scripture was to use allegory, while Philo would use a mix of allegory and literal understanding. Then we talk, we'll just talk about Augustine. He lived two centuries after Origen, and he further infused Christian doctrine with Plato's philosophy, and to him, everything in the Old Testament was about Messiah and should be viewed as allegory. So take nothing literal in the Old Testament according to him. I mentioned the Jerusalem Council a few moments ago, which was among the apostles and the Jewish leaders of the faith. And in the fourth century, we see another council in 325 AD. This one was a little different because it was attended only by Gentiles. Not a single Jewish believer was in the group. It's referred to as the Council of Nicaea. And the two foremost men in attendance were the patriarch of the church at the time, who was Alexander of Alexandria, and the Roman Emperor Constantine. And if you remember Constantine, he rose to power after Diocletian, who had severely persecuted the believers, was out of power. So Constantine replaced this really evil guy who persecuted them. Now, if you're a believer in the, at this time, and you're under the severe persecution, and this new leader arises, and suddenly he stops persecuting you, you're going to view him as your best friend. You're going to be thankful for him. So we can understand how so many people fell under his influence. But he was, at the core, a military leader, who, after a vision of, the, of a cross against the sun, accompanied by the words, in this sign, conquer, adopted the Christian faith. He made it the state religion of the Roman Empire, but his motives were purely political. And at that council, they discussed the timing of Easter because there was growing animosity against the Jews at the time, and Constantine decided to reject everything Jewish regarding the timing of Easter. That's why we see Easter and Passover sometimes a month apart. There were other church councils that, we, that did things as well that pushed against the Jews and tried to discard them from the interpretation of our scriptures. And we see one in 365 AD, the Council of Laodicea. They threatened to excommunicate anyone who kept any of the Jewish festivals, including the Saturday Sabbath. The church moved further and further away from its roots and propelled by these teachings, began to look for spiritual or allegorical meaning in all of the scriptures instead of taking them literally. They saw a passage and they just couldn't deal with its original meaning. They used allegory. So Plato's big idea of soul equals good, body equals bad, was definitely alive and well. And uh, let's see. A little behind, so. Okay, as the faith moved further and further away from its roots, what we see is that Plato's view of the Demiurge also took hold in a strong way. 
To many, the God of the Old Testament was just too mean, and he became equated with Plato's evil God of the physical world, the Demiurge, while the God of the New Testament was the nice spiritual God, the grandfather who never wants to punish for anything. And that's what's actually being taught in many of our churches today, and that's what's led to this hyper-grace movement. The influence of Greek philosophy led to a number of changes in theology, including the requirement that people choose to follow spiritual careers and that they were to become celibate. The rationale was this decision that, again, since the body is bad, so are processes such as sex. Of course, we can see today where that has led. Just look at all the scandals in the church where children have been molested and we won't even go there. That just, but there you go. That's what it leads to when you misinterpret God's word. The belief that the body is bad caused others to feel like they needed to whip themselves. For example, during plagues, saw a lot of people out there just beating themselves to bring blood and everything to try to appease this God, this vindictive God, this demiurge. It, this view became so ingrained in the church that people began to devalue their lives on this earth and fix their mind on heaven. And to borrow an old cliche, and I know you can say it with me, they became so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. <laughs> Faith to them became really nothing more than a ticket to heaven. I want to get saved so I can go to heaven. And things on this earth, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. Nothing I can do about it. Let me just focus on heaven and on my spiritual life. Instead of doing the things that God called us to do, which is get out here, love one another, to be unified, to help those in need, and to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And an outcome of this was two different classes of people. You had those who were in full-time ministry, who were viewed as having a higher calling, and those who were in secular jobs who were viewed as being part-time Christians or believers. And the problem with this is that we are all called to be full-time believers. We're called to wherever we are, even if we're in a secular job, we are to be his followers. We are to present his light and his life to others. Every, there is no job that is, God put us here to work. We forget that. You go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis he put us here to work. We are not, we don't have to be in full-time ministry to be in ministry our job, even in the secular world, should be a ministry. Okay? And too many today are trying to reinterpret and make the scriptures attractive to modern readers. They're trying to make it relevant, if you will, in order to gain an acceptance of the masses. But when we do that, we often water down God's word, and in some cases make it absolutely unrecognizable. God's word is what it says it is. It's not something we have to reinvent and reinterpret. It's important to know God's word, especially the Old Testament, because without that knowledge, it's very easy to misinterpret or misunderstand the New Testament. Remember, the writers of the New Testament were Jewish. They were writing primarily to a Jewish audience. This Jewish audience knew the Tanakh like the back of their hands. They had to memorize it. Today, we don't have that privilege. We may know some about it, but we don't know it like they did. And so it's very easy for false teachers to twist and distort it. So we really have to get in the word and study and understand what it means. And I want to give you a quick example of why it's important to know what God's word says and to know it in context as well. 
Mark 16:18 talks about picking up ser serpents being a sign of those who believe. If you read it, it's not a command to pick up snakes, okay? You're not supposed to do it, but there are a very, it's a very small percentage in the body of believers that believe that's a command. And they actually practice this in some of their services. Okay? They, they base it on that scripture. Now, admittedly, we have one example in the book of Acts where an apostle actually did pick up a deadly snake, and he lived. But it was not an intentional act. Paul was gathering wood on a fire, and the snake wrapped itself around his arm, and he suffered no ill effect. If these misled people really understood the word in context and looked at the whole word of God and didn't discard the Old Testament, what they would find out is there are passages such as Deuteronomy 6.15 that's also reiterated by Yeshua himself in Matthew 4.7 and Luke 4.12. And that says very clearly, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So don't pick up those snakes, please. So let's go back to the problem of Greek influence in Constantine. After Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, what we see happen in history is the next 100 years became what we know as the Dark Ages because of superstition, illiteracy, continuous fighting, and so forth that resulted from his brand of Christianity, one that relied heavily on the teachings of Plato. And we continue down this trail we see how he even threw out, even to the point of outlawing, all things Jewish. The Jews were consequently persecuted for centuries just because of who they are. And in some places were even forbidden to practice Judaism. Many were forced to convert to Christianity. And with each step that the body took away from Judaism, it stepped further and further away from God's word. As I said earlier, the Bible was written by Jews, primarily to Jews, and when we separate it from its origin, we can do some horrible things in trying to interpret it. Everybody knows if you have a weak foundation, a building will collapse, and it's the same thing with our faith. Our foundation is the Torah. You tear that apart, our faith is going to start crumbling. It's going to suffer ill effects. And sadly, many today are confused, and they're searching for something. I mentioned with you a few classes back how my search led me here. I have been in almost every denomination you can think of <laughs> over the years. I was raised Southern Baptist, and I was in the Southern Baptist Church until I was in my early 20s, and I went to non-denominational, and from there, here, 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 all over the place. And it wasn't until I came here in, I think it was 2003, that I found what was missing, because I was searching for something. And I found it. It was that foundation. It was the Torah. And a lot of people in the body today are searching, but they have no idea what they're searching for. They just know there's something missing, and they can't identify it like I couldn't. And it's because Christianity divorced itself from the foundation of God's Word, His Torah, His instructions for how to live our lives. And then they replaced it with this false doctrine of hypergrace. And that's continued and continued to grow over the centuries. And as I stressed the last time I taught, grace is very real. And I don't want anybody to think I am in any way trying to downgrade its importance, because I'm not. But grace is in the Old Testament. It's right there from the opening pages of Genesis, from the fall of man, all the way through that last, the last words of the book of Revelation. All throughout the Bible, we see grace.
But here we go. Grace that doesn't change lives is powerless. Okay? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 tell us this. But understand this, that in the last days hard times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, hard-hearted, unforgiving, backbiting, without self-control, brutal, hating what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to an outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. And that's what can happen and is happening when we reinterpret God's word in order to make it relevant to our society. All you've got to do is look at the state of the body right now. Just look around and see what's going on, some of the discussions being had in some of the denominations, whether they wanted to throw out some of the things God has said and replace it with what they view to be more in line with their view of a loving God. When we do that, we underestimate the power of God because the biggest miracle is the power of a changed life, of a life that's been transformed from being in bondage to sin to freedom in Messiah. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us of this. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right through to the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we water down God's word and tell them, come as you are, stay as you are, that they can be accepted into his kingdom without making any changes in their lives, we completely deny, 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 catch that word, we completely deny his power to change them. That's not all that happened when the body divorced itself from Judaism and the Torah. Not only did this grace message get distorted, but so did the opinion that many believers held of the Jewish people. And anti-Semitism creeps in. It spreads and it continues to grow. And it started very early. I mentioned Justin Martyr early, earlier, a second century church father. He once told a Jew, the scriptures are not yours, but ours. Pretty presumptuous. In the fourth century, it grew even worse when church father Jerome stated that God hated the Jews because they had assassinated Christ. Then also in the 4th century, Bishop John Chrysostom published a series of sermons expressing intense hatred and malice towards the Jews. And he stated this, and I quote, Because God hates the Jews, it is the duty of Christians to hate them. And it goes on and on. They're referred to as sons of Satan by St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, it's important to note this because he was very influential in the development of Christianity in the early centuries. He held fast to the teachings of Plato which should not come as a surprise. He's most known for his book called The City of God, which essentially declared Earth, our life here on this Earth is unimportant. And it was, goes right back to that, become, being so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. That was basically the premise of his book, was heaven is what matters, not life on this Earth. And what's ironic about it is that the people of Augustine's time believed that society should be based on Christian principles, but they never succeeded in their mission because their viewpoint was this, it'll be all right when we go to heaven. 
So it's, it's all going to work out. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to work here on this earth to try to make things better. And this goes to the whole Jewish concept of tikkun olam, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard that. It's, it's, let's contrast it with tikkun olam for a moment. Basically means repairing the earth. In Judaism, it's viewed that we're on this earth for a reason. We need to do everything we can to bring a bit of heaven down to this earth. Instead of worrying about what it's going to be like when we get there, we need to be down here trying to bring heaven to earth. When Yeshua left, he gave us his spirit. We're part of his kingdom now. So if we're part of his kingdom, we should be doing the same thing, trying to improve the situation on this earth. Yes, things are going to get bad. Read the book of Revelation. You will see that. They're going to get really bad. But guess what? We can still bring part of heaven to earth. And that's what we're called to do, and let other people know God. There's also a difference between Judaism and Greek thinking when it comes to relating to Adonai. The Greek mind says that we should strive to know about God. It's all about education. The Hebrew mindset, however, says that we should know God. And there's a big difference there. Now, you have to know about him to know him. So the Greek mindset is all about the knowing. But yeah, we need to know about him. How do we know about him? We study his word. We spend time in prayer with him. We do these things. We don't just read and read and read and learn. We actually take what we've learned and we apply it. And that's why we have studies here at Congregation Beth Ad and I. We have this 10 o'clock study. We have a service at 11. And in the afternoon for members, we have Torah classes. We want to study. We want to know about God so that we can draw closer to God so that we know his word, and he is revealed in his word. If we do one or the other, one without the other, we're going to be lopsided. If we study too much, don't spend time in prayer and fellowshipping with him. We like the Greeks, we're going to know about him, but not really know him. If we spend all our time in prayer and praising, but we never study his word, guess what? You can pray with wrong motives. If you don't know God's word and don't know who God is, you don't know exactly how to pray. So we've got to have them both, and we've got to have them in balance. And that's where the Holy Spirit can guide and direct us. Now, what I want to do is go a little further towards modern day, and let's talk about the Reformation a little bit. In the 1500s, Martin Luther who was a German monk, uncovered the truth that man is not made right with God by, or excuse me, that God is made right with God by faith alone, not by following the teachings of the church. He nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, and he began to write, as did others, and the Reformation began in earnest. The Protestant church was born, and the printing press allowed for the printing of the Bible, so now the people had God's word in their hands. They didn't have to rely on what their teachers were telling them. But again, we saw some of the reformers who pushed back against the Jews. John, John Calvin, for example, held the position that Gentiles were the Israel of God and that they had replaced the Jews in God's plan, even going so far as to curse the Jews. The Reformation was a move in the right direction, however, it just did not go far enough. It allowed the people to study God's word for themselves and to be freed from some of the overreaches that they had seen in the church. But they had separated themselves from Judaism and largely from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, centuries before. So they didn't understand a lot of what they were reading in the New Testament. It left it open for interpretation. Ah, then... 1700s come around. 
We see even more influence of Plato as the Enlightenment movement officially begins in 1715, and it continues until the turn of the 19th century. Now, what is the Age of Enlightenment, you may be asking? Okay, I'm glad you did. This is also known as the Age of Reason, or simply the Enlightenment. It was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 18th century, which was called the Century of Philosophy. There's some debate about when it actually began, the actual, what actually fueled it. Some people believe it was Rene Descartes' statement, I think, therefore I am. Other people cite the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, 50 years later. The date of what sparked it is not important. What is impart, important is to understand what it was and what it did in society. The philosophers and scientists that were involved in this movement widely circulated their ideas through meetings at scientific academies, at Masonic lodges, at literary salons, coffee houses, printed books, journals, and pamphlets. So their message got out widely within the community. These ideas undermined the authority of the monarchy and the church. Remember, the church at this time had the people in bondage. And we had the Reformation starting and starting to free people, but there was still a very heavy concentration of that Roman Catholic church that was, really had the people in bondage. Um, this paved the way for political revolutions of both the 18th and 19th centuries. So we see a lot of changes. This movement however, had a lot of ideas centered on reason, and reason was the primary source of knowledge, and it advanced ideas such as liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government, and separation of church and state, which, the, remember, at that time, the church was the state. And we see in France, uh, there was a philosopher that I think we've all, well, you may not have heard of this guy, but you've heard of someone that comes after him. His name Let's see. Let me go back. I'm trying to run out of time, so I'm trying to kind of skip around. Um, Fran okay, let's see. In France, the Enlightenment philosophers were individual liberty and religious tolerance in opposition to an absolute monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. And in France, it was marked by an emphasis on the scientific method and reductionism, along with an increased questioning of religious orthodoxy. And what this means simply... Rational logic replaced faith. Now instead of accepting God's word by faith, the people began to rationalize the word. They wanted an explanation for everything. And this is where it leads us up to a philosopher, theologian, who was Danish, Soren Kierkegaard. He's considered the father of postmodernism, if you've ever heard that term. He rejected humanistic rationalism because he understood that it means a loss of all meaning. But he also fell short of recognizing the supernatural nature of the Bible as the divine revelation of understandable, objective, propositional truth. He was brought up in a nominally Lutheran environment, but he wanted the comfort of faith, because that, that's what would provide a meaning in life to him. So this faith was not exactly the faith that the Bible puts out, because he rejected the authority of scripture, 
He helped set the stage for the postmodernist deconstruction of Scripture by succeeding generations because to him, faith became irrational. It was a leap in the dark, as he called it. And he was the forerunner of people such as Frederick Nietzsche. And I'm sure you've heard about him. Um, he said, whatever man can make work in order to achieve his purposes, that is truth. But is that true? Is the word of God true, or is it whatever man can use to make work? And this viewpoint was referred to as Nietzsche's test of wills, and it had devastating results both spiritually and politically. And I want to give you an example. Humanistic rationalism became the basis of national socialism and the horrors of Nazi Germany. Okay. It's also when we get this concept of living documents, such as our Constitution being a living document. In other words, you can take it and you can twist it, and whatever works for the people at the time, that's what you make it. It severely damaged the body of believers by producing a body that is devoid of the power of the Spirit of God. Today, many evangelical leaders, whether they recognize it or not, basically agree with Nietzsche. And I want to explain what I mean by that. They believe that what works is most important, not what the scripture says. What attracts the most people to my church or my congregation? What builds the biggest ministry? What produces the most vibrant worship? What affirms people and makes them feel good? Does this sound familiar? We see this all around us today. But let's look at the counter side of this. Does all of this mean that we should accept everything by faith and not use any rational thinking? No. Genuine faith is not a blind, irrational faith in the nebulous, the uncertain, or the changeable. Instead, genuine faith is submission to the authority of God, who is consummately rational. We need to submit this divine record of creation. We need to accept what the Bible says in those opening words of the book of Genesis. We need to believe in the salvation he gave us through Yeshua. We need to believe and take God at his word. That's true faith. When we deny the reality of God's revelation and instead rely on humanistic rationalism, that deny, results in our denying the power of God. And we can go back to, um, I won't read it because it's a lengthy passage, but you may want to read it for yourself. You can see that the early Corinthian church began very well, very strong, but it soon fell prey to this kind of deception. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. So when you have a chance, go ahead and take a look at that. But a couple of things I will point out from that passage. In verse 19, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. So that's important to note. And let's see. Yeah, he also talks about the philosophers in here. I was trying to see if I could find that passage. I'll let you read this one for yourself because, like I said, it's pretty lengthy. And we're running out of time. But Paul also warned the Thessalonians to quench not the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, if you want to look that one up. So how do we do that? How do we quench the spirit? Paul then goes on and immediately answers that question. In verse 20, he says, do not despise prophesyings. Literally, do not diminish or debase divine revelation in your thinking. And then in verse 21, he advises to prove or test all things. 
hold fast that which is good in light of God's infallible and uniquely authoritative word. Then in verse 22, he concludes with a warning to abstain from every form of evil. God's inspired, inerrant word must be our sole authority and our infallible critic in every area of life and ministry. Too many in the body of Messiah have fallen victim to the influences of Greek culture and human rationalism without understanding. They're, they just don't, they're not doing it intentionally, they just don't know. So, this brings us back to two questions that I asked in our last lesson a few weeks ago. Number one, where did the perverted message of grace come from? And number two, why is it so prevalent today? And we've spent the last couple of classes exploring that. So the easy answer, the simplified answer to number one is it came from Greek philosophy, primarily from Plato. The answer to number two is the long history of the various philosophers from Greece, Rome, Denmark, France, and other countries. And those philosophies all tie back to Greece, most notably Plato. And then that belief was mixed with humanism, humanistic rationalism, something that also descends from Plato. And so there you have it. That's where our modern, modern hyper-grace movement comes from. It's a descendant of Greek philosophy. And I mean, I found this really surprising. I don't know if any of you did or not, but you think about it just being birthed within the body of believers. It wasn't. It was there before. And it got mixed in from the beginning stages of our faith. So when you hear t preachers such as Andy Stanley talk about this mean, vindictive God of the Old Testament, their description, not mine, and the loving, all-merciful God of the New Testament, whether they know it or not, and most likely they do not know it, they are actually teaching Plato. They're not teaching the Bible. But it's been so ingrained in the faith, they don't realize what they're doing. They're doing it out of ignorance. They think this is what the Bible says because they've been groomed to believe that. It's something that you've got to really step back and dig through the history to find out that's where it comes from. So how do we avoid falling into this trap? We need to get back to God's word. We need to take it seriously, and we need to understand it in its true context. We need to tie it back to the Torah, not discard the Torah, and try to interpret the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, on its own. Doing that will lead you into error. We need to take God at his face value rather than trying to find hidden meanings in his word and using allegory to interpret it. And hidden meanings, let me say something about this. We talked about this at length in the last class. I didn't have time to really get into it a lot today. But God's word is very complex. You see a lot of things in the Bible that it has more than one application. I will acknowledge that. When I'm talking about hidden meanings, that's not what I'm talking about. There's prophetic meanings in God's word. We see God. He's a God of order. He's a God of patterns. He repeats. We've seen over and over again how people have tried to destroy the Jewish people. We can go back over and over and see that pattern. We can see so many patterns in the word of God. What I'm talking about in looking for hidden meanings is when you try to create allegory and make it something that it isn't because you don't want to accept what it says on its face. God's word is to be taken literally. That doesn't mean that there aren't other meanings in there, like prophecy and so forth, because there are. But don't throw out the literal meaning when you're looking at the other meanings. Know what God says 
Don't just listen as a child would listen to his parent, to a TV preacher or someone else that you admire. Because that person may as well-intentioned as they are. And we looked at a couple of examples this morning of people who were well-intentioned, Philo being one of them. He wanted to keep the Jews practicing Judaism. He didn't want them to depart from their faith. But in doing so, he watered down that faith. Let's not make the same mistake, okay? So we need to understand where all this came from, and hopefully I've laid out to you exactly where it came from. You understand that. And just know that God is a loving God. He is a God of grace. He has always been a God of grace. He, will, he never changes. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. But that God will, at some point, have to render justice. Okay? This is, he's not two separate gods, as some people have tried to teach. He's one God. He's the same God forever. So with that, I'm going to wrap up our teachings on the subject of hypergrace. And I want to thank you guys for bearing with me. I know it's been a little scattered. It's, it's been several weeks apart. But it's, um, I hope you've gotten something out of it and understand a little more where this modern message comes from. And when you're confronted with it, hopefully you've got enough ammunition here that you can actually talk with someone and help them understand. And if, again, I'm going to pull up the, uh, the resources again. Uh, if, if any guys you make, want to make note of this and want to look into any of these, they're all great resources. Um, J.K. McKee's book, Acts 15, is a commentary. I'll just warn you right up front if you get that one. Rich, 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 but it's commentary. It's not, it doesn't read like a novel. So if you enjoy commentary, you will love that book. If you do not like commentary, it's probably not the best resource for you. But this guy is so full, of, he really does his research. The other books are, are easy reads, so, but they're all, uh, I, I really like Dr. Brown's book on hypergrace because it, it, Dr. Brown, if you're familiar with his teachings, he is so balanced. He never wants to just criticize somebody. Even when he's criticizing, and I use that term in, in a loving way, he also shows the positives of that person, so he's very balanced. He's not just out to try to demean people, in other words. But they're all great resources. And with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this time today. I want to thank you for each and every person that you've brought here to worship you and to fellowship. Father, we know there are others on the way, and we pray that you would bring them safely. And Father, help us on this Shabbat just to focus on you, to focus on your words, to let you minister to us, to speak to us, and that we would praise you and glorify you, and, and that we would be recharged when we leave here today to go out into this world. Help us, Father, that we would not be so heavenly-minded, that we're no earthly good, but that we would understand the calling you have on our lives. You want us to go out into the world. You want us to love one another. You want us to minister to one another. You want us to help lead people to the faith, Father, to come to know you. And, Father, help us that we would be obedient to your calling on each and every one of our lives. Thank you for all you've done. In Yeshua's name, amen.